<laughs> okay, so good evening. This evening, uh, Dia and myself are going to be discussing the ins and outs of the wines of Spain, um, really with a view to uh, making some some fairly broad generalizations with regard to uh, the state of the Spanish wine industry, what they're famous for, what they grow, where they grow it, how they grow it. Um, and a little bit of background, I guess, on the on the geopolitical situation in Spain and, and how the Spanish wine industry finds itself, where it finds itself and how it's been um, so amazingly reactive to, to what its customers want. So um, I guess we should talk about the positives and the negatives of what's happened in Spain over the last century, Dia, and, um, and how that's impacted uh, the, the Spanish wine industry such as we know it in the 21st century. So, you know, ma they managed to duck out of World War II. Yes. Um, and... But they then got clamoured by a 40-year dictatorship. So, tricky. Very tricky. And very common things to set uh, winemaking and wine production back. Indeed. I mean, I think it's the same. Um, it's a funny thing. I did my I know you guys had a different topic, but when I did my um, my my specialized topic for my for my diploma, I had to do the Romanian wine industry. And, and weirdly, there's so many parallels like for them, it was communism. Um, yeah. But for Spain, it was 40 years of Franco. So yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the sort of other like Greece, for instance, as well. Um, Second World War um, was horrible, and then um, civil wars happened, and dictatorship happened, similar to Portugal a little bit, you know. And um, so Spain, all these countries, they seem to have had these political um, political turbulence yep. that actually held production back a mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, you're right. I mean, Greece has had it, Portugal's had it, Romania, the whole of the Eastern Bloc has had it, Spain yeah. has had it. Um, and what it meant for Spain was um, two things, I guess, or three things primarily. One was um, lack of investment and modernization, which I think was the, was the key one. Um, the second one was, you know, if you think back three, four hundred years, Spain was a global power who had empires um, and outposts across the four corners of the globe, much like Britain did. Um, but they basically let all of those captive markets fall under under the uh, the dictatorship. Um, and they became a sort of sort of isolationist outpost in Europe and and as a result loads of specialized skill sets um kind of almost died out which is you know chronic really but anyway they also lost a load of their own indigenous uh species too which which uh you know that's that's yes. that's pretty chronic um much like everywhere else in Europe they've got the the two-pronged phylloxera and climate change issue to tackle at the moment um absolutely uh, a lot of these happening yeah phylloxera are always across every yeah pretty much across every european country <laughs> yes um and yeah and the moment and they, they they did try and i think there was a lot of investment after the dictatorship and they um after franco and um after entering the eu uh, they, and yeah. also big investments from well-known uh, 
producers from, um, you know, traditionally winemaking countries such as France, um, you know, um, a lot of people, and also an exchange of uh, knowledge as well. Um, a lot of uh, Spanish had to flee, obviously, um, Spain during the turbulent political times, and they traveled to Bordeaux um, and learned uh, the winemaking and brought that expertise back um, and uh, developed that since. And, you know, hence you see that influence of the oak aging into uh, French wine and that style of winemaking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, who, I mean, they're still going, aren't they? Marques de Riscal is still, it's, it's still, still going to this day. So... Um, that's that's quite a quite a feat, and I think the other the other important guy, apart from um, Marcus de Riscal, the other important guy to to sort of remember, although these days he's I guess more associated with bulk and volume wines being churned out of northern Spain, but is Miguel Torres, yes. um, because really he was the he was the reinvigorator. I don't even know if that's an English word. He, but he, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. He reinvigorated the the whole um, Catalan, Catalan northern Spanish uh, attitude towards towards the product as well, and it was a huge uh, driving force in in, in investment and um, new skill sets for people. So I think he's another important name to to just sort of you know maybe you have a little think about but i think you're absolutely 100% right i think accession to the eu with the money that became available to spain which had historically you know the peseta had been a weak currency um accession to the eu was really a, a prime driver for getting the, the spanish wine industry on track yeah, so that was what mid mid eighties, I guess, something like that, nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Yep. Um, yeah, eighty six, I think. Yeah, there we go. Mid eighties, some somewhere. I'm sure you're right. Eighty six sounds right to me. I think Spain and Portugal went in together, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's As why the... I kind of like attached that together. Yes. 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 Absolutely. The and whole. Obviously, a lot of other countries. It was that era that um, you know the EU was starting to to, to form that block. Mm -hmm. um, so um, yeah, uh, absolutely. And there's a, a coordinated move to to invest in these countries. There's so much to offer. Um, and uh, yeah. Well, you you you've just hit the nail bang on the head because I was about to say in terms of climate. Um, I think Spain has probably got the biggest or widest, let's say, the widest potential range of climates almost of any other European country from the sort of misly, drizzly, damp northwest down to the sort of baking um, southeast. It's got it's got virtually everything, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um you're absolutely right there. I mean, starting from the West, um, you have all this influence uh, um, from the Atlantic Ocean and um, all this wet weather system that brings and that maritime climate, which is, you know, although it has like an even temperature throughout the year, it also has a high rainfall. Um, and like areas like uh, Rio Spacious, uh, they're really 
um, suffer from, um, you know, um, all kinds of fungal diseases, which is like the curse of a maritime climate. Absolutely. Much. Yeah. High disease um, pressure. It's a it's it's a bugger. Yeah. Yes. Um, interesting. Just to, to, to say briefly about that. Baishas, I just think we should just cover the areas climatically and just make a brief reference um, of, of a little bit of their elements there that make them what they are. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Knock yourself out. Um, <laughs> yeah i'll start by saying what i know go on then start <laughs> with rias baishas so anyway yes what i know about rias baishas i know yes maritime climates throughout rain um plenty of uh, rain um um and also um famous grape there albarino uh, very classic high acidity grape uh, with uh, lovely aromas of uh, lemon, some peach sometimes, and a little bit of floral. It's lovely. Um, very, very suits that's, um, you know, maritime climates and all that, you know, uh, areas by the seaside sort of thing. Absolutely. And um, interesting to say about, uh, about the grape growing there, obviously, as we mentioned, fungal disease is a major issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's probably been combated by specific rootstocks that are um, damp resistant and, um, you know, and also perhaps I think they have some sort of um, a certain way of training the, the vines, um, uh, probably train them a little bit higher to like a pergolave and or like uh, grapes hanging, mainly to, to allow the air to come through and dry them. Um, and, um, you know, avoid extra issues from um, grey rot or fungal, other, you know, powdery in mildew, etc. Cool. Um, it, lo- it allows you to grow stuff underneath too, if you grow pergola style. Yes, yes, that's a great point. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a good little old pale pergola. Everybody's got one, and so it keeps some nice shade. Absolutely, you can put a little table underneath, and exactly, <laughs> and that's where you can drink your albarino underneath your pergola. There you go. It all makes perfect sense. The only other thing that I know about about um, Rias Baixas sort of in particular is that it's um, it's it's made up of five little um, mini zones, isn't it? And they're not all linked geographically. Um, Sadly, my knowledge is is not is not any better than that. All I know is that there are five non non linked zones. Um, Same, and I have a vague a vague <laughs> memory of the names of a couple of the zones, but um, I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> Say something that doesn't stand. <laughs> But um, I can have a little look, maybe nah. in my book. <laughs> uh, we could all we could all cheat if we wanted to. Um, yeah, no, I won't. I won't. It's just too much to remember. I'll stick to what I know about Sarias Baixas. So going back to going back to Alvarinho or Alvarinho, I suppose we should call it Alvarinho in Spain, shouldn't we? Alvarinho in Portugal. Um, I know that there are sort of different treatments. If you're, if we're looking for the sort of classic apero, um, marine food accompanying style wine, it's mostly done as protective wine making. Um, you yes. know, to protect those those lovely those fresh zippy flavours that you were just talking about. But there are some examples that do sit on on lees or have a bit of batonage, and I think. 
I think there's some places that even stick it in barrel. I've never had I've never had an oaked Alvarino. I'm not sure I'd ever want to, but it's probably delicious. And somebody will listen to this and go, "Oh, you don't know what you're missing." But um, yeah, there you go. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, um, yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, predominantly, I suppose. Um, sort of clean fermentation with, um, you know, stainless steel, just um, not much um, air or oxygen allowed to go through just to, to protect and promote those fruity, fresh, refreshing fruity flavours and, um, you know, um, no malolactic, they, they just want to keep that acidity going, you know, uh, to uh, that mouth watering sort of um, feeling um, and yeah as you said I agree with you there'll probably be some examples that they have seen some lees um, contact and also some barrel aging suppose that might be some very few and maybe at a premium very pre- premium la- level where there's some sort of experimentation <laughs> where some place- can afford to put <laughs> No, we're in, 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 you know, a little barrel and they can afford to wait a little bit longer and uh, not uh, release it for immediate consumption. Because you just know that somebody somewhere thinks that they're growing Albarino that's good enough to sit in a barrel for nine months. That's the truth uh, of know, it. There's nothing new in this world, is there? There's nothing new. Uh, absolutely. Nowadays, that's the thing. You cannot just fit all wines in one or anywhere in, in a specific category because... There's so much research and there's so much, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurship where, where people just create different things and experiment. Yeah. So there will always be something off the beaten track <laughs> available. <laughs> you wait, somebody, someday, someday somebody's going to put Riesling in a barrel and we'll all have a conniption fit over it. Okay. Um, is there anything else that we need to be talking about with Rias Baixas or can we move across to um, Castilla y Leon? Uh, I, I think she'd move across slowly. Move um, across. I think, okay. you know, unless you want to mention anything else or... Um, oh, well, we did, before we started recording, we did mention this one characteristic of Albarino that sometimes happens, it's probably more likely I guess in a Portuguese example but the spritz we I guess we should talk about the spritz and and you've got an Alvarinho there I know it doesn't have a spritz but do you want to talk us through this do you want to talk us through the fizz yeah yeah there's always that's one of the things that someone that tries an Alvarinho or I suppose if there's um this is like a a, a hint to tell you uh, what type of wine it is, especially in a diploma exam situation, uh, you know, where you will be required to taste blind and, um, you know, take account of all the little elements of the wine. So the moment, normally, Albarinos, yes, as you, you're right, from Vino Verde and from Rias Baixas, um, it's quite common to have a little bit of spritz, uh, where the winemaker deliberately adds CO2, like a dash of CO2 at the before bottling. And that's a pure, uh, the reason is to just give it a little bit of freshness, you know, a little sparkler, sparkle and a little, you know, like it's ooh, refreshing, fresh, you know, and, you know, like um, very drinkable, mm-hmm. I would say, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like most sparkling. <laughs> I have to say, I'm coming across this... Uh this addition of co2 more and more with white with with what with white wines 
Um, I was drinking one at the weekend with my friends and neighbours across the street, Fran and Paul, and I could literally put it in my glass, put my hand over the top of the glass, give it a shake, and the CO2 popped my hand off the top of the glass, and I could hear the gas escape. Um, so I think it's something that winemakers are doing more and more, and it's it's a. Uh, but you're right; it is something that's been very characteristic of 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 Albarino and Alvarino for a very very long time. So it's a great tip in a blind tasting if you've got something with a bit of a um, spring in its step. Um, it could very well lead you down that avenue. So that's a top tip from Dia. Top tip. Top tip. Absolutely. And you know, it could be that it's really interesting that you say that you see it more and more. Mm. Um, and it's, it's um, how can I say this? It's not, a, it, it's not pure luck that all these wines, like sparkling wines and all kinds of sparkling wines are on the app mm -hmm. uh, in terms of production. And uh, people do prefer sparkling wine. You know, they do find it. And there is a shift towards more like refreshing wines of that type. And that could be why someone might want to add a little bit of spritz at the end to just make it a bit um, more, you know, um, make an appeal. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Make it yeah. more market friendly. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it more market friendly. Okay. Um, are we done with Alvarinia now? Have we, can we tick that box? Yes. Tick the box. Okay. So Castilla y Leon, um, which is ginormous and it sort of goes, stretches across a lot of northern Spain down towards the um, the central Mesita, which is the the mountain range. So you've got, um, which sort of sits in the middle of Spain. So you've got quite high altitude on the Mesita um, and you've also got mountains north and south. Um, but interestingly, you still do get some maritime influence coming, even though it's this ginormous area, although of course it's going to affect the more westerly edge of the of, of Castilla more than it is the easterly edge, which is sort of bang in the centre. Um, key key regions, I guess. Uh, I guess Bierzo is the one that's the up and coming one that everybody likes to talk about, and I guess that's because of Menthia. Um, yes. You know, Menthia has become a bit of an, an interesting culty grape. Um, and the other reason that it's kind of cool and interesting is because um, I think BFO can have something like 30% Alicante Boucher in it and we don't come across Alicante Boucher very much. Um, I think that's right. I think so. Um... Yeah, it is. I've just checked. Yeah, 70, 70, Menthia must be 70% of the blend and Alicante Boucher, uh, Boucher, Boucher, <laughs> Boucher can um, make up the rest. Um, for anybody that doesn't know what Alicante Boucher is, it's from the, that weird little family of grapes that has um, black juice rather than clear juice. So, so that oh, gives... the one that is red fleshed. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freaky little, freaky little number. Um, so... At altitude, of course, you're going to get more interesting, I guess, lower yields, higher concentrations on the flatter parts in the valleys between. You're going to get volume and high yield. Um, and down on the in those sort of valleys and things like that, a little bit like with um, 
um, younger, like Hoven and Kriantha um, Tempranillo, which we'll come to when we talk about Rioja, they do do some carbonic and semi-carbonic there. So they get that sort of juicy raspberry, strawberry, cherry, early drinking style. But um, when you get altitude five, it's up to sort of five, six, seven hundred metres, I think, you get, you know, poorer soils, good drainage, low vigour, slow sugar accumulation so all the things that you you really need in order to have a um really quite a a, a good a very good quality um potent, quality potential um you've also got some old vines in um in Bierzo and yeah you know, this is something that I think if Spain really got grips with in terms of its marketing it could really uh it could really a little bit like parts of like where I am in France. We've got a lot of old wine here, but we never tell anybody about it. But in in uh, Bierzo, they've got eighty year old vines, you know, eighty year old Menthia vines, and and they're producing beautiful, beautiful fruit, um, just low yields. Um, so, but they're grown gobelet because that's what they were because nobody in Spain had any money to put any training equipment in. So you know they're growing as gobelet vines. So. Of course, that increases your labour cost, that increases your production cost, that increases your overall selling price. But if you can seek them out, they're wonderful, wonderful wines, really. I mean, I'm a little bit, um, I've, been a, I've become a little bit of a smitten kitten with, um, with two Spanish grapes this year. So Godeo in the whites um, and Menthia in the reds have really sort of taken me by storm um, this year that I've been I've been absolutely knocked out by them. I think they're great. Um, what, are, what are the characteristics of Menthea? Like, is, bit... is it dark fruits rather than reds? And is it like concentrated, um, sort of possibly like medium plus acidity? Um, mainly because you had you know there in Bierzo, I suppose because it's at the far upper upper sort of western corner of the Castilla y, yep. y Leon. Yeah, up in the northwest. So has, yeah. That's the place that you mentioned that it has that little bit of maritime plus yeah. some diurnal diurnal range and um, and also as so Menthea must have some sort of medium plus acid yeah. due to the Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And it's also it's also got, you know, it's got the possibility for for high quality potential based upon, um, you know, altitude, diurnal range, poor soils, low vigor, low yield. So mm -hmm. but it does have also that that capacity for obtaining full ripeness. So but with slow, slow sugar accumulation. So you've got great phenolic ripeness but you keep hold of the acidity because you've got the diurnal range, you've got the cooling influences from the Atlantic. Um, yeah, it's it's really, it's a high quality potential area for me. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. And they stick, they stick the really, really good stuff, talking about putting Albarino into oak. They do do some oak maturation um, on the outstanding and, 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 and really good examples of, of Menthea. So... Um, the big producer that, you know, I guess everybody um, should know about is Jay Palacios. Um, 
and the because he's he's you know obviously he's linked to Alvaro Palacios. Alvaro Palacios is big in Priorat. And the reason that he's keen or the reason that the family is keen on Bietho is because it's got the same slate composition soil as Priorat. So the family identified Bietho as a region for high quality potential. Yeah. Brilliant. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try some I was going to say, we need to, we need to do a tasting of some Bietho now, don't we? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> where are we going to go next? Oh, where are we going to go next? Uh, where are the regions next to Bietho? Um, so Toro's oh, west of, uh, oh, yeah. of Castilla. Brilliant. So you switch, think... switch the influence of the Mediterranean for the influence of the Douro now? Yes, so Douro, a little bit more inland and sort of um, south inland from the west, but south from Bierzo in a way, but still in that, you know, being surrounded by all these mountain ranges from the top and bottom, and maybe a slight maritime influence, but not a lot, I think. It's now starting to to get into a more um, sort of, um, can I say this, like moderate continental climate, you know? I'm sure you can Um, say moderate continental climate. I wouldn't disagree with that. I personally wouldn't disagree with it. Yeah, absolutely. More of a a sudden change of the weather and temperature around springtime and a bit of a cool winter um, and very kind of hot, uh, very warm summers. Mm. about Toro, I, I, I know they they definitely use a clone of Tempranillo. <laughs> um, and is it called as Tinto de Toro or Tinta de Toro? I'm not sure. I think it's but something Tinta. like that. Tinta de Toro. Tinta, thank you. Um, yes. Um, so I, I would have thought the, the characteristics of the grapes of the grape are similar to Tempranillo, but maybe a little bit on the darker side for uh, uh, darker fruits um, for the Toro uh, Tempranillo rather than the, you know, a mix of red and and black that you would find in uh, Rioja and other Tempranillo associated areas. Um, Again, Toro, I I would have thought all these areas in Castilla de Leon have the same similar sort of climatic conditions and a similar topography, you know, you'll, you'll still find um, high altitude places um, where they make obviously the better wine, um, where, you know, with, with diurnal, diurnal range that, um, you know, keeps the, the ripening going slowly, but at the same time, um, it makes sure during the cool nights that it retains that acidity. Um, and perhaps even radiates that heat back um, during the nights to just keep on the, 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 you know, the accumulation of sugars, but very slowly. Um, and given, therefore, a balanced um, and final wine overall, um, you know, um, as all the elements have the time to catch up with each other and, and concentrate enough um, to, to create very good wines. Um, Anything else you might want to add about Toro that's quite specific to Toro? 
um, I would say, um, the only other things I would say is because we're now moving slowly eastwards away from the coast, although we will still have, as you quite rightly say, tiny bit of um, Atlantic influence, we've still got mountains, we've still got um, valleys because we've now got influence of the Douro, but the further um, continental we become, um, the lower the rainfall, um, but we do have sort of higher continent, you, know, you said moderate continentality, continentality, continentality? Yeah. Yeah. Can we run with yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. That's um, a great word. <laughs> it's like one of those words when you say it so many times, you look, you think to yourself, is that actually, have I just made that up? Um, I think you've got the situation where you've got, um, because you've got this high, big diurnal swing, um here you've not got the big moderating influence of this of the atlantic which is a huge body of water you've just got the douro so i think here you're you're starting to get into because you've got altitude you're starting to get into a, a situation where you could potentially have frost issues yes great points so yeah. that's the one thing and the other thing that i was going to say i read something um what was the other thing that I read about this place? Oh, yes. The pain, the pain in the neck of Toro is that it's bloody miles from anywhere. So, so it's like, it's like no, not near any ports. It's not near any big cities and it's not near anything. So I'm guessing because with Spain, most of the old plantings, which you've still got in Toro, are bush vines, you're going to have either some potential labour issues or potential cost issues relating to labour, and you're going to have difficulties getting the bloody stuff out. Yes. Um, you know, export must be um, a, bit of a, a bit of a nuisance. I mean, the one thing that it has got going for it is that because it's such a pain in the neck to get to and from, um, the land there is much cheaper than it is in next door Ribera del Duero. So people who can't afford to buy in Ribera del Duero buy in Toro. <laughs> Well, that, that's a great way to make your way up because, you know, areas like this, similar to, to, to Doro Bierzo was the same, you know, they were unknown up until like the uh, past few years. And now, um, whereas there's investment all over Spain, to be honest, but even in um, where famous winemakers from um, other regions start recognizing, as you mentioned earlier about the slate soles of Bierzo, similarly, recognizing the, the favorable conditions uh, to create um, similar wines, you know, at the fraction of a price, um, you know, in terms of um, land cost. Um, and um, I suppose labor might be hard to, to, to find, but even so, in, in such um, faraway areas from main cities, there's always should be people looking for work, work. you know, yeah, in a way, and, and, you know, that's another aspect of it. And, yeah. um, um, hopefully, as, as things move along, these areas are becoming more and more known and uh, hopefully they w may become easier to distribute these wines. I'm Absolutely. not sure. Yeah. Well, um, good Toro. Good Toro. Let's, Toro, let's, let's yeah. keep our fingers crossed on Toro. Yeah. So I guess that brings us to 
Ribera del Duero. Do you know what I really like? I'm just going to go off topic for a minute, but do you know what I really like about Spain? Spain isn't pretentious about its wine, is it? I mean, okay, everybody knows the DOQs of Priorat and, uh, and Rioja, but when it comes to everything else, they're respectful of tradition, but they're not so tied up in legislation like the French and to some extent the Italians are that they they trip over their own feet they're just they're inventive and they're reactive and they're commercial and they've got some people who have got some real vision and i i'm just i i take my hat off to the spanish and their wines i really do i'm loving loving spanish wines yeah yeah absolutely <sighs> right okay oh. ribera del duero ribera del duero is i suppose it was an area that would be similar to Toro, as we mentioned earlier, because back a few years back, like 30 years back, um, 35, 40 years back, it was um, a relatively unknown area, not much wine, a little bit secluded in the, you know, um, so not, I don't believe it was close to any major city to, to be able to have like frequent trading, um, so, um, you know, the, as you said, the, the good thing about Spain is that it's big and everybody can try and find, and it's, it's got amazing weather and everybody can potentially spot these new regions, um, that can potentially become extremely good and very well known. And such region is Rivera del Duero. Yeah, I think um, this, 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 there's a couple of things with Rivera del Duero that we have to, that we just have to chuck at, chuck at any question that you're that, that might come up. Um, one is actually it's not that far from Madrid, so it's not that uh, far from the capital, which makes accessibility to a huge market um, okay. a massive benefit. That's that's one thing, um, and the second thing was that it's been championed. Well, I don't know if you can say it's been championed, but it's it's had recognition from two of maybe the most well globally well known Spanish wineries um, have kind of said we're setting up here, and you you can't I guess underestimate the impact of Vega Sicilia setting up on your doorstep and going, hey guys, we've decided that Ribero del Duero is it for us. Or, you know, Pingus going, hey, um, we're coming to play in Ribero del Duero because that changes the dynamic of a, of a region, doesn't it? That's a bit like, you know, um, oh, I don't know, you know, oh God, um, any... The impact of any, um, like if Screaming Eagle came and parked on your front door and said, OK, I'm going to turn the Minervois into the new cult cab region, then, you know, it would, it, it, it would happen, wouldn't it? So, I mean, you, you have to, you can't, you can't, you can't just sidebar the impact of globally recognised players setting up somewhere, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely, so. absolutely. Um, so yeah, we've got, what else have we got? Um, yeah, money came in from Catalonia, from, from, uh, from Priorat. Um, mm -hmm. 
You're now in high continentality if you've ever been to Madrid. As a pair of curly-haired girls, Madrid is terrible news for us because the humidity in Madrid is usually horrendous. So, yeah, yeah, it's um, cold winters, hot summers, high altitude, high humidity. Um, Yeah, pretty pretty grim. Nice city, but terrible weather for curly-haired girls. (laughs) <laughs> it's a beautiful city you should go but you know, maybe just put your hair up like me um what else do we need to talk about uh... i suppose um again quite similar climate to the other two regions of castilion um again as you said yeah the high continentality maybe a bit more extreme as we go inwards and um, perhaps um, a little bit higher altitude compared to the other ones um, that creates a more um, sort of uh, intense weather patterns, I suppose, like, you know, major differences between day and night yeah. um, in terms of temperature. Um, again, perhaps and all these altitudes and uh, the proximity, actually, one of the elements is the proximity to the uh, River Duro, Duero, as it's called in, in Spain. So um, I suppose for the flatter land, there will be some moderation there. But for the better wines, it's, the, the, the vines are normally tend to be um, to, to grow in uh, higher altitudes. And um, again, uh, the, the planting, um, I don't know, the... the, the Training systems, old vines there, uh, bush vines, yeah, gobelet. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of the two. So where you've got old plantings, they tend to be uh, gobelet. And then where the new boys have come in, you know, when where there's been new investment, they've tended to try and set up for mechanisation a bit more. So a bit of trellising and, and, and mechanisation. Um that said, same as everywhere in Spain, plots tend to be minuscule, you know, teeny, teeny, tiny. So it, they have to have sufficient v- vineyard size in order to warrant setting up for mechanisation. Otherwise, it's a bit of a waste of time. To justify it, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, we should mention, I guess, uh, that uh, Ribera del Duero is a DO for red and rosé only, not for white. Yes, very good point, actually. Thinking about it. Really, yes, important to, to, to know. Definitely not a white, um, mainly red, but also some rosé, yeah. Yeah, um, um, yeah but they yeah, have yeah. got, they have got, of course, um, the region of, of uh, Rueda. The reason that I say that is because I'm looking at the back label of the wine that you and I, though, that I'm going to try later, which is that I've, I've picked up a Rueda uh, Verdejo, so I'm looking at a wine, <laughs> which is a non-DO, um, non-DO wine from, uh, from the region. So, yeah, it was just funny. I, I just, my eyes fell upon that and thought, yeah, actually, no, they don't make any white DO. So um, what else can we say? Oh, yeah, we should mention that although um, um, we're mostly growing, obviously, we're starting to to sort of really get into Tempranillo country, aren't we, basically? Yes. Um, but Ribera del Duero has some odd rules about other things that you can chuck in the mix. 
I know it's not a huge percentage and it's not always the case that they use them, but they do have quite a lot of Bordelaise grapes that they're allowed to use, um, plus some other bits and pieces. I mean, I know that Malbec, Cabernet Sauvignon, and I think Merlot, yeah, I think Merlot, um, are allowed, and, and plus one or two other little bits and pieces, sort of up to up to a quarter of the blend. Um, it just always strikes me as really weird when people want to start chucking Bordeaux grapes into what is essentially, you know, we're, we're heading into sort of the, the heartland of Spain, but okay, you know, whatever, whatever floats their boat, I guess. Uh, anyway. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Tempranillo and sometimes a blend of um, some Bordelais varieties. Um, Merlot, Cabernet, etc. And Malbec, you mentioned. Yeah, I think Malbec. I think Malbec's okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, okay. I trust you. And oh, also, oh, when making wise, I suppose. <laughs> when making wise, <laughs> I suppose this wines, and now we're entering this like. Given that they're red and rosé, but let's stick to the red for Roberto and Guero, but it's good to know that they only make red and rosé. Yeah. Um, um, uh, one of the important fact factors, that, one, one of the important things to know is that we're starting to get into that oak aging, which is so famous in Spain. Um, yeah. um, and they, they have all, again, similarly to Rioja, but differently to Rioja, they have their own sort of uh, um, uh, minimum times the, the the wines are supposed to spend in bottle, overall aging bottle and barrel, um, you know, so we're getting into that territory where the, um, the, the alcohol will be high, then the aromas will be black fruits, mm-hmm. made predominantly, again, and then they will have aromas from oak, could be, I'm not sure, I believe it's both. French and American, because yeah. they have that influence. Yeah. I think they use both, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, obviously, all the, they will display all these aromas that are derivative of um, oak aging or uh, time spent in oak um, of some sort, especially new oak, um, which, um, um, you know, of ch- chocolates, smoke, and all this, you know, vanilla, um probably and um if it's american oak a little bit of coconuts um and all that big bold wines basically full-bodied um medium plus actually high alcohol um high acid to match all that fruit concentration yeah definitely knife and fork wines yeah knife and fork wines definitely okay well seeing as how um Rueda doesn't fall into um, Ribeiro del Duero. Um, what can we say? Let's just do, let's skip over it real quick. Um, Verdeco, principal grape, I think they also grow some Sauvignon Blanc there, which they use to sort of pad things out, um, which is one of my key hates. Um, Thank you. Pardon? Uh, me too. You too? Yes. Oh, I hate, I, I hate it when they pad, pad things out with, with grapes that aren't from places that they should grow. Oh, no, no, no. I don't mind that. But I naturally, ever since I got into wine a few years back, I just can never, I will never buy a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, really? 
Oh, I don't mind. I drink it. I drink it. It's just not my style of uh, this, the, the grassiness, and especially from the cool regions and all that. Okay. No, don't get me wrong. I have tried some very good ones. I like some stuff from the Loire and all that. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I have. But I will never personally go and buy and get a buy Sauvignon Blanc because the moment I see it, I'll, I'll be like, I won't enjoy that wine 100%. You have you have an anything but Chardonnay attitude to Sauvignon Blanc. Wow, <laughs> dear, what are we going to do with you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, my my issue is it. You see, they do it down here as well. So when the talking about Sauvignon Blanc, so when the whole Sauvignon Blanc um, explosion happened about what is it, fifteen years ago, or like I suppose when everybody stopped drinking Chardonnay and started drinking Sauvignon Blanc, and because the Languedoc is this still to some extent this kind of workhorse production area for volume all of these producers started planting Sauvignon Blanc down here and it's like putting a redhead in the Sahara it's just bananas why would you do it it's they they have to irrigate the bejesus out of it and they it gets sunburn and you know they have to pick it in the second week of August in order for it not to be at 14% because nobody wants to drink Sauvignon Blanc at 14%. And it's just the most esophagus melting awfulness. It's, I, it, I, I, I really have a bee in my bonnet about it. It makes me so grumpy that people take, take grapes that aren't suited for particular regions, but because the public want to drink them because they're not well informed enough to know that a Sauvignon from the Languedoc is not going to taste like a New Zealand Sauvignon at half the price, um, even though those people with the chemistry set in the winery in, in the Languedoc will try their very best to make it taste like Cloudy Bay. It's never going to taste like Cloudy Bay, right? So the fact that they pad these these wines out with stuff that, that doesn't come from there, I it really, it can you tell it really annoys me? <laughs> Yes, 100%. I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. I absolutely understand it. You know, absolutely understand it. You know, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we have our likes and dislikes and we get pissed off with things. I know. know, Some things, especially that we find that don't belong where they're planted, you know, know, it's being done for the, perhaps, I'm not sure in London, but, you know, in other regions, perhaps that blend possibly is for recognizability uh, because there is some speed there oh wow it must be like fashion nice okay you know? <laughs> the, the, the only thing the only thing i can say in the defense of this situation is that maybe because i think it was I don't know, about 40 or 50 years ago, you know, when the Marquis de Riscal came back from Bordeaux and he had all of the, the Bordelais learning and let's put Rioja into, into barrels and all that yada yada. I know it was the Marquis de Riscal that brought back, um, no, didn't bring back um, Sauvignon Blanc, but he recognised that Rueda was, had the potential for making high quality white wines. So maybe he just went, oh, and they grow Sauvignon Blanc in Bordeaux, so let's plant that. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. Well, the best thing actually is that now Bordeaux has, I think recently, they've uh, incorporated Albarino or Albarino into their Bordelais white grapes. So um, for, you know, that's really interesting to hear 
the finally the Bordelais have adopted some other variety, you know, outside the, the classic French uh, international. I think, I think they had to. They had to because yeah. the climate is changing so quickly. Um, you know, we have to. We have to appreciate that, you know, the the percentage of Petit Verdot is going to go up in Bordeaux. Yes. Because, so because the climate is going to dictate it. Um, yes. Anyway, let's not talk about Bordeaux, otherwise we'll be here until midnight. Um, yes, yes, yes. Another time. Another time, absolutely. So a little bit like, though, let's let's kind of tie it back, a little bit like Alvarino. Generally speaking, Verdeco is from Rueda, um, protective winemaking, cool for temperature ferments, cultured yeasts to keep it clean and tidy, sometimes a little bit of lees to give it a little bit more body. Generally speaking, no MLF encouraged. Um... I think it's got to be 85%, at least 85% for it to be labelled Verdeco. It's, it must be. It's the 85% rule, isn't it, in, in, in Europe? Um, what else? Um, well, it's always popular on export markets because of its price point, because it's an extremely well-priced, well-made white wine. So they sell a lot in Spain, but they also export an absolute tonne of it. Very interesting point, that one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, excellent. Um, and <laughs> just the last point there is because both Ribeiro del Duero and um, uh, Rioja wineries and vineyards are generally concentrating on their reds, primarily, I guess, because they'll make more money out of the reds, but sometimes because of legislation also. But lots of wineries that have, or lots of, yeah, lots of, wineries have also have vineyards in um Rueda to add a white to their portfolio uh, you know to complete a portfolio so that's a little interesting sidebar just for just for Rueda very interesting yes absolutely always good to know that they have like a little bit of a variety well and... yeah I think I think these days people get people get frustrated with wineries that don't have you know, massive portfolios of wines. They expect a range of things. And, you know, if legislation doesn't permit, it's a bit like, you know, well, if I own um, two hectares of land in, um, I don't know, Merceau, I'm not going to plant... Um, what, what, what would be really stupid? Um, I'm not going to plant... Um, Garganega because that's what I like to drink I'd have to be completely off my chump because um you just wouldn't do it because commercially you'd be committing suicide so nobody in in Rioja is going to plant something that they can't sell as Rioja and charge the premium price for so that's why they have them in Rueda Okay, so true. Right, okay. Oh God, I've been on my soapbox a lot tonight. Help me out. Talk to me about Rioja no, and Navarra. Please, thank you for doing that. No. Um. <laughs> I'm a bore. I'm a bore. Talk to me about Rioja and Navarra. Cheer me up. Thank you, because I do know, I just have to say, I do learn from you. So this, for me, is pain is not one of my strongest points. So I, I could use all the help I could get here and all the information I should, you know, remember. Or uh, Rioja, yeah? Yeah, let's <laughs> talk about Rioja. Rioja, well, um, again, what can I say? It's, it's just that plateau, Rioja, similar to, 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 you know, has that continental climate 
I had to start with. Um, it, it, you know, um, it's split into t- three regions, which I think they're quite important to, to know mm-hmm. as one, um, you know, have, you know, specific um, sort of, the, you know, uh, aspects and soils and, um, you know, um, so um, there are, you know, the, the regions are Rioja Alta, Rioja La Vesa and Rioja Oriental. Um, one of the key main factors, natural factors there and elements is, um, again, the, the river Ebro, um, yeah. you know, and that actually dictates how the vineyards are situated in Rioja and the various aspects available, yeah. um, you know, um, throughout all the three regions. Um, now for, um, just to say Rioja Alta, I think um, it is the largest um, um, region of the uh, uh, the lar- largest sub region or largest zone, I should say it. Um, <clears throat> so it has again different elements, different parts of it. Uh, I know that's uh, on the north. It's um, a little bit more cool temperature, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, that's pretty much all I can remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Help me there. Uh, the Rioja La Vesa, I think, is just the smallest of the zones. Um, again, quite similar to Rioja Alta, I think, in terms of uh, weather patterns and uh, natural factors. Mm-hmm. Um, again, some, some altitude there, I believe so. Um, and... Um, then we go to Rioja, and both of these, just to say, Rioja Alta, Rioja Alavesa, famous for Tempranillo. Um, and I'll move to the Rioja Oriental, and just to make that difference, because it was thought that for many years, I think, that Rioja Oriental, which is previously known as Baja, but now is Oriental, and that's what we know. Um, you know, um, it was... The, the area, traditionally, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, traditionally had to Grenache vines, Grenacha. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, around the 80s, 90s, with all this revolution and the, the fame of Rioja, a lot of Grenache vines were pulled out and Tepranillo was planted there instead. And don't get me wrong, there are parts of uh, Rioja Oriental, especially the south of the zone, I think, that are cooler. And, you know, they're, they're more suited to Tempranillo, but overall, the majority of Rioja Oriental has a little bit of more flat uh, land, um, and it's quite warm as an area and hot, which is quite suited to Grenache. Uh, and I think there's now a, a turn in many producers to, to think, hey, actually, this region, Grenache, makes amazing wines here. Mm. Why do we insist on <laughs> planting something? Exactly as you, coming back to your words earlier, <laughs> with all the blends of Sauvignon Blanc and, or anything that might be blended that doesn't belong, um, you know, doesn't fit or doesn't suit the region in terms of soil and weather and climate. Um, and so, yeah, that's about it. Um, again, as I said, yeah, did I mention, I did mention a little bit about the southern part, which is the, like the high quality production zone of uh, Oriental, which is quite similar to Alta and Alavesa. Um, what else about Rioja? Yes, it has all these, again, um, the, the, the 
big temperature difference of temperature between day and night that continentality you mentioned um again for all the right reasons so like concentrated and uh, like promoting slow ripening concentrated flavors and you know, maintaining retaining acidity and um you know creating um beautiful complex wines or not <laughs> depending because <laughs> Rioja is massive and you can get like from your four pound fifty five pound Rioja to you know the, the premium uh you know to 450 um, four to 450 pounds exactly uh, but yeah anyway I mean uh, why making why so yes why making I, th I think it should be uh, distinguished between the everyday everyday Rioja, um, mass production, um, a very famous wine that is a staple everyday wine for a lot of consumers. Um, it's uh, widely available from like to, through your corner supermarkets and corner store that sells only five bottles, you know, of a very basic wine. There'll always be a Rioja there, you know, uh, has a, it's quite affordable. Um, Winemaking wise, uh, I believe for the for the entry level wines, not much oak aging, but for the uh, Reserva and Brown Reserva, which actually Rioja has their, its own denomination. It's actually Doca. Yep. <laughs> yes, that's in Priorat. I think I remember that. Um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said to Pranillo, that there are some other varieties that are blend there. And, uh, I think it's uh, Grenache and Mezuelo. Mazzuello, um, anything else that you can recall? So yeah, just going back to geography, there's a couple of couple of things that um, if you if we get some sort of question about what impacts um, growing conditions and style, maybe. So apart from the Ebro, which of course is the the river that impacts the overall climate, making it more or less a Mediterranean climate, you have got mountains to the north and mountains to the south uh -huh. so you've got cantabria uh -huh. to the north mm -hmm. and you've got the demanda to the south and that is where you meet the mesita so yeah. so you've got kind of the coolness of the cantabrian hills and the heat of the mesita and you've got rioja kind of sandwiched in between and if you think about, for me, when you're talking, or when I talk about the, the regions of the three subzones, like you were talking perfectly about, um, I always tend to think of um, where they are, the capital of, oh, hello, who's this? He just came on the table. Hello. Hello, gorgeous boy. Um, I always tend to think of... Um, things in relation to Logroño, which is the capital of, of, of Rioja. So if you think of um, Alta is basically west of Logroño, so towards, towards the Atlantic. So you've got some maritime influence at Alta. You've got Alavesa, which is west of Logroño. And you've got Oriental, which is east of Logroño, but north and uh, it's bisected by the Ebro. Yes, yes, correct. So you've got the Ebro actually running through the, through the, through the, through the zone itself. That's, that's yeah. all I would say. Um, yeah. The other thing about um, 
the other thing about the about sort of winemaking, I'm going to talk about winemaking, I guess, because we're going to talk about um, minimum barrelling restrictions and Lord knows what else, I'm sure. But um, the key thing about having three subzones within a DOQ or DOCA or however you want to um, label it or call it is that you've got um, massive potential for equalising vintage variation. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I would just... And, and volume production. Yeah. And uh, so 